Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the, the Murmurations podcast. Uh, today, I am joined by Dr. Ross Garner from Cardiff University. Morning, Ross. Morning, Daz. Um, people listening or watching might actually think, oh, here we go again. Another Cardiff person who's either at Cardiff or used to be at Cardiff. Or This is basically just me reconnecting again with another one of my old friends who I did my PhD with. Uh, actually actually lived with Ross for a couple of years as well and we've not had a chance to speak for a long time and I'm using this podcast as an opportunity to reconnect with Ross and have a nice chat today about some interesting stuff. Ross is currently a lecturer in media and cultural studies um, and we're going to talk about various bits and bobs today. Ross does an area of research which even I've confessed to him in the past I was always a bit snooty towards and didn't quite always appreciate the uh, value of it, which I certainly do now. Um, but that's quite going to be quite a fun way for us to pitch today's conversation, because I'm going to be basically saying you do a lot of stuff about fandom and media fans uh, and um, nostalgia and transmedia storytelling and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I'm basically going to be saying to you, so, so what? Why does it matter? A little bit like I did to Paul Bowman with cultural studies. So, um, before we get into any of that, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, Ross, and your current research and teaching and your background? Yeah, I am a lecturer, a course director for Cardiff University's BA in Media and Communications. Uh, and I teach three modules on that at the minute. One is a year one introduction to media audiences module uh, which overlaps with quite a bit to do with fandom and then I also teach uh, optional modules in third year of study on that uh, BA media and communications course one that looks around ideas about um, locations and screening um, particular external locations and uh, the other which is about kind of marketing branding promotional cultures in the TV industry um, at the minute um, research wise I publish um, uh, rather than kind of fan studies, I, I tend to think myself a bit more in terms of cult media more generally. So that's, you know, media forms that tend to attract fan communities, which is where the overlap comes from. Um, but certainly, yeah, looking at particular issues that relate to kind of fandom, especially intersections between either fandom and industry or fandom industry and um, place and entertainment experiences, etc., Part of the um, rationale behind fan studies in, in the, one of the kind of motivations for studying fandom is that, you know, you can speak on behalf of the kind of community and communities that you represent, whether that's, you know, people who are Doctor Who fans or Jurassic Park fans um, or what have you. You kind of know a bit more about what goes on in the fan communities and what those kind of shared meanings of the fan object are that can help to kind of argue against some of the more you know radical dismissals of popular culture yes sure one thing i remember you saying to me about before was the interesting way in which you can approach these texts that some people think might be trivial in terms of popular culture in general in general being trivial but Firstly, there's the, often these two layers of, okay, you can approach this just as a TV programme that's made, say, Doctor Who, that will entertain children, 
but then you will also have another layer to it that you can look at, which is clearly there in the script writing and its production and so on. That sort of appeal to adults. Mm. So there's those two layers of that, but also when you look at that, you see why that text is, is, is an important text to understand in relation to cultural industry, television, production, all those kind of values that go with it. Do you want to talk to talk a little bit about that? Cause I think that's really important and of interest to people beyond kind of the research that we do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, yeah, one of the, one of the kind of immediate dismissals of fans in general is that, you know, there's a stereotype around they tend to have particular interests that you know they perhaps should have grown out of or you know they express their fandom in ways that um you know again maybe they should have grown out of whether that's kind of collecting merchandise or or whatever it might well be the dismissal being there that a these people haven't necessarily grown up and have some kind of stunted development uh and b that these people are kind of blind consumers that all you need to do is kind of slap on a particular logo or particular kind of character iconography on something and these people are kind of easily exploited um and a lot of the working kind of fandom has has very much kind of worked against those stereotypes and kind of argued against those stereotypes despite the fact that there's you know they continue to endure um if you look at kind of popular press reportings of fans as it is you get you know you it's easy to see the roots of these things in terms of how they're spoken about still uh, representations of fans whether that's in photographs or or what have you so yeah i mean if, if you want to talk about something like doctor who or star wars um fandom around those texts um tends to be kind of you know double coded in that yes they do appeal to children and they are heavily marketed towards children um but at the same time they do or they did on their initial release attract an adult um audience as well um and they did also and you know they've continued to endure or that audience has continued to endure and get old with um the particular intellectual property as things have gone on um i mean if you think about doctor who there's some stuff that you can complicate that with you know doctor who is a product of the bbc it's a public service um or it's a show made according to public service requirements and responsibilities by the BBC. Um, so that means that, you know, rather than having to, trying to target a particular kind of niche audience in the way that shows that are produced, like for the American TV channel Sci-Fi are, you know, they work with a very, very kind of clear understanding of who the audience for that channel is, which is kind of like a niche, typically male, white, um, you know, age kind of 18 to late 40s age demographic something like doctor who has by necessity of being on bbc one to appeal across a much much wider range of audience niches for it to be successful for them so it has to combine appeals to child audiences with appeals to adult audiences um of you know various different identity groups uh whether it's successful in terms of doing that is uh, a critical question that you can ask and there's been quite a bit of discussion around you know racial representations in doctor who uh the current kind of re production regime has very much attempted to tackle some of those issues whether in terms of casting 
or the types of stories that they've told around people like Rosa Parks, um, what was it, uh, the creation of India and Pakistan in um, one of the stories of, of the last series, for example. Um, but yeah, it, it, it has to try and, and appeal across as wide a range of um, audience niches as possible. Excellent. Am I right, because I don't watch Doctor Who hardly at all, am I right in thinking that they've cast the Doctor as a woman for the first time? Yes. Yes. And and some people got really, really angry about that. <laughs> and yes. I remember thinking it's a fictional character that, that does lots of extraordinary things. It doesn't seem that extraordinary for them to be cast as a woman. But what do you think about that? Yes, I mean, you're, and, and you're opening out into some questions that studying fandom, you know, tends to connect with there. Um, yeah. I'll start my own kind of personal response to it, which was, I, I was very, very pleased, really. I mean, this show, it, yes, it started in the 1960s, but, you know, if you watch it or if you've seen any of the Doctor Who from the 1960s, it's a very, very kind of patriarchal show, the, the initial idea for the character of the doctor was that he was this kind of grandfatherly figure um so it's very very much in line with kind of 1960s patriarchal masculinity um you know those mores have more than shifted not being completely removed by any way state um stretch of the imagination but you know there is a more kind of liberal sensibility and and if you've got an alien that can change its face and body and what have you will surely it makes sense that um the character should you know could be female and can be non-white um because that's one of the other big wishes against it and i think there was a, a you know quite an understanding um amongst some sections of the fans but also amongst some sections of the or a lot of the bbc that the show needed to you know to make to maintain its relevancy it needed to kind of push at the boundaries of of what was there and so casting a female doctor was one way of kind of doing that and showing that the show can do that yeah had previously a couple of seasons earlier tried to fudge that a little bit by having one of the kind of ancillary time lord characters get shot and regenerate into a woman so kind of saying you know okay that can happen but maybe we're not going to do it with the main character um, I, I, I think it was, you know, a necessary step. If the BBC is supposed to be kind of inclusive and representation or, or representation, representing the nation as widely as it possibly can, then the idea that the, the lead character can be female rather than male is, you know, something that is important. And I think the next step, which again, they, they tried to do in the most recent series by having this idea that there was somewhere in the history of the character a, a black female doctor, which has been well received by some areas of the fan community, um, less so by others, but I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. Um, you know, that's that's another step that the show has to take um, if, it, if it's serious about, you know, trying to represent the nation and, and what the UK is in the 21st century. Well, you know, confining the role to white, masculinity doesn't really kind of fit that that in any way shape or form i said to one of my mates a little while back down the club that it would be really cool if he just elba was the next james bond and yeah. he, he immediately went you, you can't do that and i was like oh, what, why he was like it's not because he's black it's because he's too old and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> the bloke's fit as a butcher's dog 
And uh, no, he's too old. He's, uh, but yeah, it, we laugh, but this I think shows that these texts, these shows um, that have been with us for so long, films, shows, whatever, they they're a part of our culture and they mean a lot to people. And what they symbolise means a lot to people. And when when you start to things start to change, and people don't always like change. Um, while some people welcome it, others don't. These texts and stories become a real kind of almost like an ideological battleground for different cultural voices to sort of struggle out and have a say and, and be represented. Yes, yeah. Um, and you can see that over any number of um, things, uh, you know, kind of cultural icons, whether British or, or otherwise, you know, there's things like the female Ghostbusters movie, um, you know, the, the, the idea that will there be a black James Bond or, or non-white James Bond is that uh, Star Wars has been an especially big locus for a lot of this type of discussion um, in the light of the movie The Last Jedi and afterwards. Um, oh, right, yeah. The Last Jedi you know, the whole point of the narrative was it was kind of deconstructing heroic masculinity in that, you know, any type of male figure that tried to exert some kind of agency and ultimately came unstuck. And, you know, it, it, it led to a rather kind of pointless storyline uh, in one of the movies that didn't really go anywhere. But people seem to overlook that uh, with the fact that it wasn't supposed to go anywhere. And that was the kind of wider point that they were trying to make with it but you're absolutely right the problem that you get with that then is a big kickback against it especially and i hasten to say amongst the more established fans which tend to be um the older white male fans which you know really really kind of vehemently push back against this that they don't like the fact that this show is being or the, this particular property that they're very emotionally invested in and, and they feel a sense of ownership over because they've been invested in it in su for such a long period of time. It's part mm -hmm. of their identities. It's part of how they kind of think creatively um, around things. And then changes to that that are quite dramatic. They, they push back against quite aggressively in, you know, whether that's on social media or, or in other forms um, in terms of, you know, saying that, you know, Star Wars is dead or Doctor Who is dead and they just need to kind of cancel it now, put it out of its misery, that kind of thing. Um, which touches on, I think, some of the some of the kind of um, wider debates about these as, uh, what can we say, as, as kind of commercial texts, because a lot of the time these, you know, if you look at things like Star Wars, you look at Doctor Who, these things are being made these changes are being made to kind of broaden out the audience to attract a wider range of people to um, the text, you know, uh, the role of Ray and Finn in Star Wars, um, although, you know, both are problematic in different ways. Um, that, that's clearly been done to try and widen the appeal of Star Wars across gender and kind of racial um, elements to it, or across audiences, sorry. Um, to the extent that, you know, people then kind of push back about it. So there's commercial imperatives about that. And some of the fans then push back saying, well, you know, we're your core audience and you're um, 
you're you're letting down your core audience when right. you know quite, quite frankly the people at the studios who make star wars would be like well actually we're, we're trying to get as many bums on seats as possible and the fans are probably that which we <laughs> which we're bothered about um but you also yeah you get into much kind of wider cultural debates about you know who do these things matter to and who are they allowed to matter to and then the types of fan engagement that you get with them as well i mean i've said a number of times that you know since force awakens came out with star wars star wars fandom has, has transformed quite phenomenally um and it was the same with doctor who fandom round about oh blimey when david tennant became the doctor and you know there were a lot more female fans identifying as doctor who fans which which has been very very welcome it's transformed the type of discussions that go on in the fandom um the type of productivity within the fandom whether that's kind of fan art um or kind of comics drawing writers etc you know i always make the joke that within star wars fandom all of a sudden nobody's bothered about the size of the cockpit of an x-wing anymore which was the kind of discussion about kind of minute specific technical details that you would get <laughs> within some of it which which wasn't for me you know some fans really like that and that's yeah, that's yeah. absolutely fine and i completely understand why that's no. the case in terms of the the investment in that kind of level of textual detail but you look at the levels of kind of creativity um which have been introduced into doctor who fandom and star wars fandom and other things since attempts have been made to widen the appeal of these um and it to me it's been nothing more than beneficial and you know it, it's rejuvenated these properties so yeah there is this tension between the kind of the old guard that like what they like and then the changes that come impact and you know whether that's the show or the fans more generally because you know when doctor who started being a lot more popular off the back of david tennant um there was a lot of pushback that you know oh, doctor who's not for girls and you know these are these are the hardcore kind of doctor who appreciation society people um who post on facebook and you know make some controversial comments mm. correct me if i'm wrong here because i'm i don't pretend as i said at the beginning i don't pretend this is my immediate field and Matt Hill's probably be throwing tomatoes at my side of the screen now if he hears you trying to talk about this. But earlier on when you were talking about um, the stereotypes of fans and stuff like that, yeah, a lot of this connects back to a key scholar who really got this stuff going as an academic field and, and was really able to connect that, that, those interests with kind of mainstream conversations as well. This is Henry Jenkins, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Henry Jenkins did that really important work that talked about all the stuff you were talking about and also talked really made a convincing case to show why fans are really significant to the production of media and popular culture mm. hasn't he more recently and i if this is right <laughs> hasn't he more recently started to write about politics not just popular culture but actually about more about mainstream politics as well yes yes and you get a lot of intersection between fandom and political activism uh, yes. nowadays that association between kind of fandom and some kind of activism has been there from the start yes. um the first book that you're talking about was textual poachers which came out in 1992 that's it um and 
you know, people tend to forget that that was arising out of particular issues in studying the media, which was namely about trying to understand the relationship between media influence and power of texts and the audiences that receive them. Um, you know, during the early 80s, we had a lot of work that was, you know, starting to demonstrate that audiences were not passively affected by the media. The, you know, the, the audience and the people who watch media texts were actually very active Actively in terms of that, the, the active audience paradigm um, or reception theory, as, it, as it's sometimes known. And that then led to a greater interest about, okay, well, there, you know, there's the possibility for um, resistant readings, you know, kind of outright, outright reject the ideological meanings of a particular text. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, work like Janice Radway's reading the romance, which looked at female um, consumers of romance fiction and how they use that to kind of push back against, you know, their everyday roles that patriarchal society has pushed upon them. And fans, you know, Jenkins's argument at the time that fans were an equivalent version of these resistant readers in that they took um, what popular, popular culture gave them, but, you know, frequently reworked it in a variety of innovative ways um, and in a variety of ways that pushed back against some of the kind of boundaries of the text, whether that was exploring, exploring kind of queer subtext within text, rewriting shows according to different, um, you know, genre things, which is where you get the kind of boom in fan fiction um, or studying fan fiction that has been, um, you know, fan fiction is probably the most overrepresented form of um, what fans do in terms of fan studies at the expense of other things but mm. it, it was there because it was showing that these people were actively kind of reworking the meanings of the text you know creating their own stories that explored what was it i mean the classic one is um the relationship between kirk and spock in star trek as a uh, homosexual relationship or, or what's called slash fiction um, that they did in their writing. So yeah, the idea that fans were these people who were using the tools that were given to them, but reworking them and, you know, working on the ideologies of the text, um, you know, to whether that was exploring kind of queer subtexts that they'd identified, rewriting stories according to different genre norms, whatever it might well be. Where that kind of goes, you know, the next step from there is, of course, you get the internet rising um, and opportunities for fans to kind of share their, first of all, their kind of ideas about a programme and then their forms of productivity, whether that's videos, art, stories, whatever it might well be through platforms like YouTube or whatever, um, whatever it might well be um, that you get from there. So kind of fans is very kind of not just audiences, I'm trying to remember the exact term from Jenkins, but not just audiences who read the text, but also write as well. So they create their own media that goes around that. And, you know, what's it, the changes to, to Web 2.0 around about 2005 with the emergence of social media, um, you know, allowed fans again to increase the connections between each other and show their own creations and their own create creativities around things, which is another area of why studying fandom has become, you know, increasingly important. 
and you know you now are at the stage where the media industries recognize the importance of fans and do and in many ways exploit fans and you know use lean on fans to promote particular topics or you know design marketing campaigns specifically towards fans so that fans share things on their social media platforms and mm. you know so these ongoing discussions about are fans um, ultimately creative or are they exploited continue to go on and you know when the truth is actually on a case-by-case -case basis things fluctuate in in the middle quite a lot yeah. i think we'd say i guess it um, makes sense to for an element of attention or increasing attention to be drawn towards politics as well because when you think about the way these political personas and people who were celebrities before they got involved in politics and you think about trump and figures like this the way in which they're talking almost to they're almost talking to loyal fans and followers and we're trying to navigate some of the things they say and do that are not what we expect from politicians but we can probably sometimes make sense of them more when we think about their their fans and followers which is quite a different way of talking about politics to what we've done in recent decades but um yeah, yeah. it kind of makes sense that jenkins is, is kind of looking at that kind of area now as well yeah and i mean the intersection between kind of fan objects and, and popular culture is huge now you know and the internet again has enabled that um you know there's been some very kind of iconic examples things like using images of carrie fisher as princess leia in terms of the women's marches around the world and especially in the us that you know there's a particular image of, of carrie fisher which has been used as a an, a uh, an image of resistance really that you know and fans have reworked you know have used those things across a variety of different ones whether that's using i don't know the narrative of star wars to to understand the rise of kind of trump and and near-right fascism um or you know marvel superheroes would be another example where you see that um you know the use of well fans you know were one of the first people to create memes as well and you know the use of kind of memes to comment on political situations that are going on there um only yesterday i saw the the, the video of trump um being interviewed um for axios uh, i don't know if you saw it and people had kind of said well hang on is this a fan creation making it look like the thick of it or v um yeah. and, is this and, the one where he nicked the notes yeah yeah where he where he stood there with with kind of graphs that looked like a child created them and uh <laughs> trying to point out that that was the best i mean if, if it wasn't so scary it would it would be hilarious it's a farce it's it's an absolute farce but you know fans kind of pick up on those tropes that they've seen within popular media and recirculate them and recut them and go well hang on there's there's similarities and differences here um or you know fans also use fandom as a way of addressing political issues um and inequalities that they experience whether that be um along gendered lines sexuality race you know there's there's started to be a lot of work in fandom that's been drawing attention to the inequalities that when we talk actually about fandom over the last 30 years what we've spoken about for the most part is the experiences certainly of white fans um more than than anything else and how the experiences of fans of non-white identity positions is is very very different 
to that mm -hmm. and how they can use fan objects maybe in terms of kind of political protest and political activism okay there was one other thing which you've done really recently which i think you probably wanted to talk about um didn't you do something that you're really gonna have to try and convince me to be to take this seriously now <laughs> <laughs> didn't you do something about dinosaurs recently yes yes it's it's currently where my research interests are are headed which and hopefully i I'm, i'll try and condense this as much as possible to try and convince okay. you about the um advantage or, or why we might want to study people who are fans of dinosaurs yeah. yeah um so increasingly in studies of fandom there's been a lot that has recognized that you know there's been a lot of studies done of, of fandom as particular or people who are fans of particular discrete objects star trek star wars doctor who whatever it might be the stone roses to give your uh, your poster behind you when actually people's fan attachments are very very are not singular at all um about things you know people are not just fans of one thing so they're often fans of a lot of different things and things that overlap yeah. um in a variety of different ways and as a result of that there's been calls for kind of better understanding of um the variety of different things that people demonstrate a kind of fanish interest towards um so you know as a result of that it's looking at kind of fiction and non-fiction um you know you've had things like millie fandom which was people who were fans of david Miliband in one of the election campaigns <laughs> uh, or people who, who demonstrated kind of that level of what we would call fanish attachment to things whether that's kind of um a heightened emotional investment into something um talking about it a lot acquiring a lot of knowledge about it and so as a result of that there's been um some pushing at the boundaries in terms of thinking about um properties that not necessarily might be you know media franchises in the way that star wars and doctor who are but um you know things that are mediated objects that spread out across a range of different things and that people seem to demonstrate fanish forms of interest in um and i was having a chat with this was a few years ago now i was having a chat with somebody about this um over a drink and the you know it just popped into my head the idea about you know people who are fans of dinosaurs there are people who know a hell of a lot about dinosaurs there are people who are fans of jurassic park um there are people who um you know go to museums read a lot of books accumulate a lot of knowledge about dinosaurs and you know what how might that be different to uh and intersect with and challenge some of the ideas that we have about uh media fandom um that, a kind of touch point about that would be you know one of the things about typically kind of male fan interests is collecting things you can probably see from behind me i i'm a bit of a fan collector um well, when you start thinking about that in terms of dinosaurs you then start to get thinking about things like the trade in fossils and skeletons worldwide which opens wider questions about the relation or the intersections between the scientific community and research and knowledge about um prehistory and geology uh rubbing up against kind of commercial things where you know people might want to buy a dinosaur skeleton to stick in their giant mansion and you know 
as a result of that, that goes out of the public domain of kind of possible scientific inquiry and into the private domain of people that's there. That, you okay. know, that's been, that's yeah. only just kind of one example of it. Mm. More broadly, um, there's a lot to be said that kind of dinosaurs are, if, if you start to kind of scratch the surface and think about what it is that dinosaurs interest us or why it is that they do us, there's a lot of literature that points towards the fact that dinosaurs interest us not only because of their size but because like humans they were at one point the kind of apex species on the planet and they died out they became extinct um and that speaks a lot i think to kind of current cultural anxieties around um climate change uh, around yeah yeah, around our own status in the world and in kind of wider history. And, you know, it starts to raise questions about, you know, if that could happen to the dinosaurs, could that happen to humanity as well? And, you know, what might be, um, what might be some of the kind of consequences around that? There's also, you know, dinosaurs are interesting because they span across a number of generations. Um, kids, for example, have, you know, like to demonstrate their, precociousness via accumulating knowledge about things and, and you know frequently that would be about things like dinosaurs and naming species of dinosaurs as ways of kind of challenging and contributing towards adult discussions or kind of family discussions within um, the adult area so yeah it's it, it's a very interesting topic and it, it is one of those things that when you mention it to somebody especially if you put the two things together dinosaur and fandom you it you get people scoff at you but i think one of the you know cultural studies is about trying to explore and give voice to people and you know experiences and practices that are in the minority or overlooked for whatever reasons and because dinosaurs straddle things like adult child as as cultural categories as well as extinct living you know people raise an eyebrow about that and then when you add fandom onto the top of that with you know the associations about you know these people are stereotyped in certain ways you know they they can't separate fiction from reality etc the two things really kind of rub up against each other in yeah. a way that, that you know generates that and i think if we can kind of build from there and, and try and understand why it is that that things like natural history and dinosaur skeletons and fossils appeal to people um we might get be able to get a better understanding of ourselves and our, certainly our kind of current human condition yeah I, th I certainly think the way that we engage with these like very niche fields and when so many people like, get hooked on them in similar ways there's of this obviously there's always going to be stuff to learn i mean it's um I, i'm a bit cheeky and i tease and stuff about getting you to convince me but obviously i i mean there's a, there's a really good example when my parents retired in the last couple of years they got really into their uh train shed and there's this i didn't realize until they got into this that how many people are building train sets in their lofts and sheds and stuff there's mm -hmm. even other people on on their road to live on and there's just this there's these shows they go to there's the creative element there's the you know being occupied when you're retired and having a hobby um 
the technical side of putting this thing together and creating a town or a village and all these different things that they can do in this space they've got in the sheds and sharing ideas with other friends and connecting with people they wouldn't have been speaking to before and there's all this 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 stuff that reflects things that i think we find ourselves needing to do to connect again and needing to um have things to invest ourselves in and to learn about and to you know having things that are something else greater than just us to try and be engaged with and to care about um i think that's it can only be worthwhile to understand this stuff in, in more uh detail so yeah and everything you say there just it, it is kind of what i was hoping again that it's about creativity whether that's kind of individually or collectively it's yeah. about community and kind of sharing experiences with people it's about um you know it's embedded in consumer culture in that you know it it, it is about kind of buying things and, and what people choose to spend their money on and why and how those things are made and marketed to people um and yeah studying fandom can open out across all these you know different sectors and and others you know i dare say kind of that notion of, of train collecting is partly rooted in kind of a, a nostalgia for particular types of quite British experience. Um hey well you should you should go and do some research into train uh, training <laughs> railway enthusiasm. Also collective intelligence as well. Like the mm. collect, collect the important I mean we're seeing the importance of collective intelligence at, at the moment in terms of getting scientific communities to work together. That that's massively important. But Fan, fan communities have demonstrated collective intelligence in the way in which they share things and create things and so on and, and those those dynamics online as well so e even that collective and community side to it's really important i remember there oh, was absolutely. A, yeah. somebody i used to work with uh, did built drones in his shed no I mean, drones are everywhere now but yeah. very very early on when they weren't this massive massive commercial familiarity he was building the these big really sophisticated drones for filming stuff because he was a filmmaker yeah and it was all shed shed based it was all shed based or garage based online sharing data with other drone builders around the world and they created all this knowledge on how to build these drones as mm. a community of people interested in it yeah yeah that kind of collective intelligence and shared knowledge is certainly something that that fan communities you know are, are, are rife with and and again it spans the entire kind of political spectrum uh what was it there was the thing about uh trump's last rally in in the mid of the kind of covid thing where you thought he had all these people coming and it was particular fan communities had apparently registered for tickets with no intention of going so that he thought he was going to have this kind of massive crowd and and then you know that he was playing to a kind of a what was it one third full arena or something yeah, like that third, yeah. yeah um so yeah absolutely kind of sharing knowledge collective um collective information is, is a key part of that and that plays out in so many different ways in terms of kind of fan experience it might be knowing when knowing when and where a particular thing is being shot it might be you know down to something trivial like where to get the dvd at the cheapest price or you know <laughs> yeah. something like that there's all this kind of shared information that goes on about it which you know and, and the internet again has enabled that type of connectivity between fans and certainly brought it to the foreground excellent okay well it was definitely out of time 
and I think you've done a good job of showing us why studying fandom matters. So thanks for coming on. It's great to speak to you again and uh, take care. Pleasure. Thanks, Darren. Thank you, mate. Bye-bye.